a former college student shot and killed a Texas Tech police officer on campus in 2017. After a weeks-long trial, a jury last week sentenced him to life in prison for the crime. We're recapping the case. This is Listen in Lubbock. For Texas Tech Public Media, this is Listen in Lubbock. I'm your host, Sarah Self-Wall-Brick. Last week, Hollis Reed Daniels was sentenced to life in prison without parole for killing Texas Tech police officer Floyd East Jr. in October of 2017. A jury decided his fate after hearing hours of testimony and evidence. They chose life in prison for him rather than the death penalty. The Lubbock Avalanche Journal's court reporter, Gabriel Monte, was in the courtroom through the trial. He joins us in the studio today to tell us more about the case. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's first talk about the crime. Gabriel, tell us what happened on October 9th, 2017. So on that day was a, a Monday and about 7.50 that evening, Officer Floyd East Jr. was shot and killed in the Texas Tech University Police Department's briefing room where he was working on some paperwork involving the arrest of 19-year-old sophomore Hollis Reed Daniels after the officer had found drugs, uh, specifically Xanax, lying in plain sight of Daniels' dorm room at the Talkington Hall. So tell us a little bit more about what led up to Hollis Daniels' arrest that day. Right. So earlier that day, Daniels' roommates, George Vaughn and Andreas Olivo, went to the police station at the Student Union Building, where East was stationed, and they reported hearing a gunshot from Daniels' dorm room. Both roommates testified at the trial and told jurors that they were awoken by a gunshot about 3 a.m., and um, when they woke up, they confronted Daniels about it, and George Vaughn said when he asked Daniels about the the gunshot, he denied hearing it. And then when um, Olivo confronted him, Daniels said, oh, that was a a large book that fell. But when he followed Daniels into his room, he saw what appeared to be a semi-automatic pistol. And he said that Daniels admitted to firing the gun, saying it went off by accident, and basically just begged him not to tell anybody. But, you know, because they were concerned that their roommate had a gun in his room. They went to the police and reported it. And so East and Corporal Tyler Snelson went to the dorm to investigate the roommate's report. And they didn't immediately see any evidence of a gunshot, but their investigation quickly changed when they saw pills and drug paraphernalia basically lying in plain view of the dorm room. And so as more officers came to assist and document this budding narcotics investigation, Daniels walks into their dorm and, you know, sees all these police officers and is immediately asked, you know, who, who are you? And he gives them, um, I think he gave, gave him Olivo's name, and the officers knew immediately, well, we already talked to him. We know that it's not, that's not who you are. And, you know, he immediately apologized and admitted that he was Paulus Daniels and that was his room. And so what police officers didn't know at the time was that Daniels had stolen a gun from his friend. It was a 45 caliber pistol, and he wanted to use that gun to rob a Xanax dealer. And the plan was to return the gun immediately after robbing the dealer before anybody knew it was gone, but that didn't happen. His friend noticed the gun was missing and confronted Daniels and asked him to come back. And when he went back to the house, there was an argument. Daniels said he didn't steal the gun and told him if I had the gun, I would have used it on you and killed myself. And so at some point during that argument, there was a physical altercation and Daniels was punched. But, you know, the gun was never found. And so he left only to come back a couple of minutes later after he noticed that when he 
fell to the ground, his phone fell out of his pocket. And so he came back to that house looking for that phone. Now the friends that he had had an argument with were back in the house and could see him pacing outside. And, you know, they thought, well, he was armed and they were afraid that, you know, he was sort of in an agitated state. So they called the police. And at that point, Daniels drives back to his dorm. But a police officer responding to the friend's 911 call spotted the car and initiated a traffic stop. But because there wasn't any evidence or any probable cause to warrant a search, the officer never searched Daniel's car and the gun was never found. And so he was let go and he went back to his dorm. And around that time, I guess while he was playing around with the gun, it went off. So that explains how Daniels got the gun. But how was he able to get it inside of the Texas Tech police station, which is the scene of the crime? Right. So at the trial, we kind of heard different stories of how that gun got into Daniel's possession. One theory, because none of this was ever proven in court because Daniels had pled guilty, so he'd already taken responsibility or admitted to the crime, so we didn't really have to go into proving that he had the gun. But, you know, there are a couple of theories that were presented to jurors at the time. And one of them was that Daniels might have stashed the gun in the couch in the common area of the dorm room. So when Daniels enters his dorm room and is confronted by police, Officer Snelson actually does a safety search. And at the trial, Snelson used one of the prosecutors to kind of demonstrate to jurors how he searched Daniels that night. And it was a pretty thorough search. So he was telling them there was no way he would have missed that gun. Now, what we do see is Daniel's encounter with the police officers at the dorm room because it was all caught on police body-worn cameras. And we see um, at some point Daniels is sitting on the couch talking to police officers about the gunshot report and about the drugs that were found in his dorm room. And at some point, Officer East determines that there was enough probable cause to arrest him for the drugs. And we see the officer search Daniels again and handcuff him. But he's not immediately let out of the dorm room. He's allowed to sit back on the couch. And at this point, I think prosecutors believe that when he was sitting handcuffed on the couch, he feels the gun that was in the couch and manages to kind of put it in his waistband. And so once he stands up again and is let out of the dorm room, he's not searched that last time. And so by then, when he's walking out of the dorm room, he's armed with a pistol. And at some point, we see video of Daniels being transported to the police station in the back of Officer East's squad car. And we see him kind of move around. And at some point, we hear a thump, which they believe is a gun kind of falling onto the sort of molded plastic seats in the back of a police squad car. We actually can see part of the gun as he kind of shifts the gun into the front of his pants and tucks it in there without the officer knowing. And so by the time the officer takes him to the briefing room where he fills out that paperwork, Daniels kind of has that gun ready to go. So that gets us to the police station. What happened there? So at the police station, jurors were able to watch video of East's encounter with Daniels because um, as part of their policy, officers typically place their body-worn cameras on a desk sort of opposite where the paperwork is being filed. And, And so we see both East and Daniels kind of in full frame of the video. And the video just showed what appeared to be a typical arrest. I mean, Daniels is talking to the officer about his arrest and the nature of the drug charge against him. And it was a pretty quiet scene up until sort of 30 minutes in where we hear Daniels asking Officer East about the officer's family and whether he had kids and if they were grown. Now, during the trial, the prosecution made efforts to kind of show the video only to jurors. So they set up two television screens in the courtroom kind of pointed away from the gallery. So anybody in the gallery could only hear what was going on. So at some point we hear 
Daniel's asked those questions about East's family and his kids, and then we hear a gunshot. Now, prosecutors sort of described the scene and said that right after Daniel's asked East those questions, he sort of pressed the gun against the officer's head and fires it. And after that, we hear Daniel's take the body camera, take the drugs, and just run out of the police station. That is certainly a night that I will never forget. I was working at the AJ at the time with Gabe and happened to be on the night shift that day. I remember hearing shots fired on Texas Tech campus come over the police scanner that evening. And about 15 minutes later, our photographer at the time, Brad Tollefson, and I were on the scene for what turned out to be a cold, long night. Gabriel, remind us why the night of the crime was so long. So after fleeing the police station, which is on the north side of the campus, Daniels tells jurors he ran back to his dorm, the Talkington Hall, which is pretty much on the opposite side of campus. And we later learned that he was there maybe about a minute. One of the residents at the dorm, um, not knowing what was going on, let Daniels in. But he didn't stay for very long, and um, I think about a minute later, we see video from the dormitory of him running back. I think at some point, Daniels realizes that his keys were back at the police station, and for some reason, he decides to run back to the police station, but then just continues on to kind of jump over the barrier for Marsha Sharp, where a manhunt has begun, and police officers knew that Daniels was a suspect in, in Officer East's shooting. And so they see a person that appeared to match Daniel's description cross into the Marsha Sharp Freeway and kind of head north to uh, University Avenue. And at some point, two other officers spot him walking on the C1 parking lot by the Jones Stadium and confront him. He stops for a second and then bolts and runs to the Coliseum where more officers begin to chase him. Now, he's ultimately arrested and the whole episode took about 90 minutes from when the shots were fired to his arrest and I think for many people who were covering that story in that night it probably felt a lot longer because of the uncertainty and and just the the emergency and and sort of the nature of this yeah absolutely it was I had been at the AJ for about five months when this happened. I had covered a few breaking news events at that point, but definitely nothing like this. And so that is absolutely probably a factor in my memory of how that night was. It was tough. Daniels has been at the Lubbock County Detention Center since then. He's now 24 years old. Gabriel, remind us, why did it take so long for this case to go to trial? Well, so preparing for capital murder cases where the death penalty is sought is sort of an intensive process. It's not something that you can just go to trial and be ready for in a couple of months or even a year or two. It's a lot of investigation into a defendant's background, including their childhoods, which can include a search of school records, disciplinary records, just anything that they'll need to present to a jury to ask them for the death sentence. So added to that are typical developments in a criminal case that often delay proceedings, including attorneys getting hired and fired and then finding another attorney, scheduling conflicts with prosecutors and judges and and other cases that they may have that might take priority. The COVID-19 pandemic also played a role in delaying not just this case, but every other case. Not a lot could have been done around that time. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more on the trial of Hollis Daniels. Stay tuned. (music) 
You're tuned in to Listen in Lubbock. I'm your host, Sarah Self Wallbrick. Last week, Hollis Reed Daniels was sentenced to life in prison without parole for killing Texas Tech police officer Floyd East Jr. in 2017. We're recapping the trial with the Lubbock Avalanche Journal's court reporter, Gabriel Monty. Before the break, we reminded you about what happened that October day over five years ago now. Gabriel, set up this trial for us. What were jurors tasked with deciding? So since Daniels had already pleaded guilty, jurors had to decide essentially how he would die, whether he would die uh, in prison after a long life or if he would die after a couple of decades of appeals and prison and then would be um, sent to death by lethal injection. So to find that Daniels deserved the death penalty in this case, jurors had to answer two questions. Whether the evidence that was shown to them showed that there was a probability that Daniels would commit criminal acts of violence that constituted a continuing threat to the prison population where he would spend the rest of his life. They also had to answer whether there was enough mitigating circumstances that would spare Daniels the death sentence. Now, the criminal acts of violence isn't actually defined under Texas law, so it could be anything from a terroristic threat to an assault or to even murder. But they had to find that those acts would constitute a continuing threat to the prison population, which includes not just inmates, but also prison guards and a whole host of civilian workers that work in prison. So that includes nurses, maintenance workers, that sort of thing. So to answer yes on the first question, they had to be unanimous meaning all 12 jurors had to say, yes, we think he's a future danger. To answer no, they would need at least 10 or more jurors to agree that he wasn't a future danger. To answer the second question, they had to be unanimous that there wasn't any mitigating circumstances that would spare Daniels a death sentence, and they needed at least 10 to say that, yeah, there are mitigating circumstances. So what essentially all this means is they had to be unanimous for the death penalty, and then essentially what turns out to be a hung jury to give him life. And in fact, there is a provision in the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure where if a jury in a capital murder case where the death penalty is sought tells a court that you know, we're at an impasse, we're deadlocked, we can't get to a unanimous verdict on on death, and we can't get to the 10 or more on the life sentence, and we just can't make our minds up, the court is required then to impose uh, a life sentence without parole. So selecting a jury to make these decisions was its own process. What did that look like? So jury selection in capital murder cases are kind of a long process because, especially when the death penalty is sought, you're trying to find 12 jurors who would basically affirm that there are a set of circumstances where they can find themselves issuing a death sentence. So this all began with about 250 being called for a general voir dire, which is where attorneys sort of introduce themselves and introduce a little bit about the case. So in, in jury selection, jurors aren't really given the specifics of the case. So there's a lot of hypotheticals being asked of them. But in the general part of jury selection, jurors are basically just given kind of a questionnaire that has them answer questions about what their thoughts are on the death penalty. And then, you know, if they've heard of this case, and if if so, if they've already made their minds up. And once attorneys took about two weeks to go through those questionnaires and begin the 
individual voir dire phase of the trial where basically it was one-on-one interviews between the attorneys and the potential jurors. Now, an interesting part of the general voir dire was when Chip Lewis, again, the lead defense attorney in Daniel's case, told potential jurors that essentially the main disagreement they had with the state was whether or not Daniels deserved to die by lethal injection. So that sort of tipped their hand that, you know, we're not really looking at finding an acquittal in this case, but rather how Daniels should be punished. And so the individual voir dire process took about three weeks. And during the, uh, the individual voir dire process, attorneys sort of pressed the jurors more on their thoughts about the death penalty and their feelings toward it and whether or not they could find themselves really considering putting someone to death. And we sort of heard a lot of responses on kind of both sides of the spectrum here where one potential juror basically said, you know, it needs to be an extreme case. And another potential jury said, you know, well, just the killing of a police officer alone was enough for, for them to grant the death penalty. And there were some jurors who were also concerned about how this trial would affect them personally, just on an emotional or mental level. And wh- whether or not they would vote for life without parole or the death sentence, it was just, you know, it was just a very kind of overwhelming case for them. So ultimately, attorneys were able to pick about 55 people as potential jurors in this case. And about a week before testimony began, they were able to narrow that number to a panel of 12 jurors with four alternates, so 16 in total. Daniels faced lethal injection, which I want to talk about some more. Why was that on the table? I think the best answer to that is kind of what Lubbock County District Attorney Sunshine Stanick told jurors in her closing arguments. I mean, she told them that one of the hardest things she's had to do was ask them to kill Daniels. But she told them that she couldn't trust Daniels to go into prison and not be a future danger. I think just the cold-blooded shooting of Officer East, I think, was enough to show that, you know, Daniels was a future danger and that anybody in prison would be threatened with him in there. How often do prosecutors pursue the death penalty? So death penalty cases, at least in Lubbock County, are fairly rare. I think prior to the Hollis Daniels case, the last death penalty trial was in 2014 when jurors handed down a death sentence to Brian Zuniga, who shot and killed an employee of the One Guy from Italy restaurant during a robbery. Since then, we've seen a few capital murder cases, but none of them were cases where the death penalty was sought. So the term for those kind of cases are mini-cap cases, where once you convict someone guilty of capital murder, they're automatically sentenced to life in prison without parole. So as I said earlier, death penalty cases are sort of an intensive process and time-consuming. So they're only sort of sought when prosecutors are convinced that a defendant is just going to be a threat to everybody in prison. Tell us more about the prosecution's case. So for prosecutors, they believe Daniels, you know, the night he shot Officer East, he showed a callous indifference to human life that was basically part of his character. This wasn't to them like an aberration or just a... a, actions brought out by Xanax intoxication. They believe that this was sort of um, a culmination of sort of an escalating pattern of criminal behavior that started uh, when he was in high school, when he would serve as sort of a middleman providing drugs to classmates at his private high school. And there was also evidence that uh, he'd, he'd had some sort of disrespect to law enforcement. And so for them, this was a case of Daniels just being kind of the worst of the worst, uh, a person who would once he's in prison, he would act out of self-preservation and basically harm uh, anybody that he needed to. It's time for another break. We'll be right back with more analysis of the Hollis Daniels trial. Stick with us. (music) 
Welcome back to Listen in Lubbock. I'm Sarah Self-Walbrick. We're talking with Gabriel Monty, who's the court reporter at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. He recently covered the trial of Hollis Reed Daniels, who shot and killed Texas Tech police officer Floyd East Jr. in 2017. Daniels was sentenced to life in prison without parole. We heard about the prosecution's case before the break. Gabriel, what about the defense? What was their case? Well, so what prosecutors believed Daniels would be a danger and a threat to the prison population, defense attorneys, on the other hand, had a different opinion of their client. So one of the things that they really focused on in this case is that their client's actions the night he shot and killed Officer East was sort of a, a perfect storm of this unaddressed mental health issues compounded by drug abuse and then grief over the loss of a family friend who died a few months before the shooting. And so they felt that in the five years since the shooting, Daniels is a different person. They said he used this time at the Lubbock County Detention Center, strengthening his faith and helping other inmates. So during the trial, they called on Daniels' relatives who told jurors about sort of their family history of mental illness and sort of how their attitude toward getting help or even addressing it was just to ignore it. And they said at the the time of the shooting, Daniels was sort of spiraling out of control. And in fact, outside of that 30-hour window where, you know, he stole a gun, threatened a friend, robbed a drug dealer, and then shot East, Daniels had really no history of criminal violence. So to them, it was more of a mental health crisis more than a cold act of murder. And so when Daniels testified, I mean, he was very contrite. He had trouble sort of trying to explain why jurors should spare him. Why, why he deserved any mercy at all. I mean, he was very remorseful, I think. So for defense attorneys, there was really no proof that um, outside of his actions that night that Daniels was a threat or future danger. And, and as far as mitigating circumstances, they basically presented the last five years of, you know, uh, essentially a clean disciplinary record at the jail to show that, you know, he's not going to be future danger and, and just there's no risk. So after the jury heard from both sides, jurors started deliberations. Tell us about that. Jury deliberations are probably one of the more tedious parts of covering a trial because we never really know how long a jury is going to take. They could deliberate for 10 minutes and they could deliberate for 10 hours or more. I think um, in this case, jurors really spend a lot of time really churning over their decision. And in fact, during their deliberations, jurors had asked to review evidence that was presented before them at the trial. They wanted to watch video, listen to more testimony, and just kind of rehash the entire trial because it did take three weeks. And so that's a lot of time to just sit through the trial. And, you know, they weren't allowed to take notes. So a lot of times they really just needed a refresher on the evidence. And then I think one important part of this is before they entered into deliberations, um, prosecutors and defense attorneys were both given like two hours to make their closing arguments. And that's just a long time to make your closing arguments. And so I think that required a lot more review and just a lot more time and effort to, to come up with a, with a verdict. What was the mood like in the courtroom before the verdict was read? When we finally heard that there was a verdict, I think there was some relief that, you know, we're almost done, but there was also a lot of tension because we didn't know what the verdict was and just exhaustion. This was a three-week trial again, and, you know, deliberations had gone on for about 21 hours. So it was just sort of this mix of tension and exhaustion and just anxiety all, all around. 
And what about after? How did those close to the case feel about the sentence? So I was sitting in front of the Daniels family when the verdict was read. And I remember hearing sighs of relief when Judge John McClendon read the juror's verdict, and especially that part where they found that there were mitigating circumstances to spare him the death penalty. And that's sort of where you hear the sighs of relief and some tears. We specifically heard from Floyd East Jr.'s family after that. And I want to make sure that we talk about him before we wrap up this conversation. Who was Floyd East Jr.? And how has the loss of him affected his loved ones? So Floyd East was 48 at the time he was killed. And um, he had actually just started working as a police officer for about five months. So law enforcement was sort of a career he'd always dreamed about. But for most of his life, he was in sales and in retail. In fact, one of his fellow officers said, you know, that that experience probably made him a really good officer because it helped him deal with all sorts of people, especially on a college campus. So he was, um, he brought that sort of customer relations sort of take to his job as a police officer. Even his widow, Carmen East, told jurors that Floyd had a very wonderful knack of being able to talk to youth. In fact, he helped raise her daughters and their house was sort of considered a safe haven for their daughter's friends. And he was always able to talk to them and sort of try to see how they're doing and and help them if they needed it. In fact, as a police officer, he was very proud of being able to sort of talk to students and and sort of calm them down when they're, um, in his words, going ape. And and so, you know, he was essentially sort of the police officer, any parent who sends their children to, to tech. He was the sort of police officer that they wanted to deal with their children. And so his family had sat at that trial the entire time. The only part where we didn't see them was when that video of his um, shooting was played to jurors. Even just hearing it was just too much. And so his loss was tremendous. And I think it speaks sort of to the kind of person he was that even after his death, his widow kind of wanted to continue sort of his legacy of helping people. And so they set up uh, the Texas 635, which is a reference to his um, badge number. So it's a nonprofit organization that provides resources to families of fallen officers. So I think Carmen East said that, you know, when an officer is killed in the line of duty, they send about $635, which is not a lot, but it's sort of there to say, you know, we're here for you. Um, And they also added sort of another mission to their charity, which is to um, provide mental wellness for officers. So they provide retreats to officers who've kind of on the brink of their own mental health crisis. And so I think that speaks a lot to the kind of person that Floyd East was, that he was just there to help people. And in fact, during the trial, prosecutors pointed out that, you know, part of his uniform, which is not the official part of his uniform, but he would wear a pin that read my brother's keeper on it. And, you know, that was uh, that was Floyd in a way. Gabriel Monty is the court reporter at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. Thanks for your work and for talking with us today. I'll link to Gabriel's coverage of the trial in the web version of today's episode. You can find that and other local programming at ttupublicmedia.org. Until next time, thanks for listening in. Mm-hmm.